Today's episode is sponsored by Game on Tabletop, the tabletop crowdfunding platform for gamers by gamers. Have you ever wanted to create your own game and thought of crowdfunding to help you fund it? Then Game on is for you. With multiple features such as an integrated pledge manager, a digital library, a tabletop marketplace, auto-unlocked updates, add-ons, and much more, Game On's campaign editor is built for game creators with a passionate team of crowdfunding experts ready to help you through every step. So, go to GameOnTabletop.com and reach out to us at projects at GameOnTabletop.com. Let's make great games together. And if you're looking for a partner to help you with marketing, I recommend you reach out to Andrew Lowen at Next Level Web. In the last year, Andrew and his company have helped board game creators raise more than $2 million on Kickstarter, and 91% of those campaigns funded in the first 24 hours, and 74% of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They have a system that works and offer solutions ranging from helping you build ads for your project all the way to fully managing your marketing campaign. So if you're looking for a reliable marketing partner for your upcoming campaign, visit nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and fill out a contact form. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about feedback. We're talking about one of the most important aspects of the game design, game play testing, game marketing process, and that is taking in feedback from your playtesters, from your players, from your target audience, all those different angles. And we're talking to John D'Angelo from Red Gen, game, uh, Red Gen Productions. John, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really excited to have you on the show. This is something that is so vital to the game design process. And it's also something that uh, a lot of times, if we're being honest, as creatives, as people who maybe struggle with putting our designs out into the world for other people to experience and potentially hate, also potentially love. But, you know, a lot of times we don't think in those terms. We think the negative, you know, just kind of how our human brains work. And so feedback is just one of the most vital things that you can learn how to uh, take in humbly you're taking well take in and not take it personally and so really just pumped to hear about your games and the different parts of the feedback process different things that you've set up as far as systems and and also you know how do you develop a thick skin i think that's also something good to talk about here but before we get into that who are you how'd you get into game design all that kind of thing um yeah so so uh, um i have been in into gaming since probably uh, 10 or 11 and um this is going to echo so many of the game designers that I've heard you interview and others interview is um, I started young on tabletop with D and D and, uh, and then on the side to fill in when I couldn't meet up with my buddies to do that was video games. Right. So uh, just a nice mix of all the different various ways of getting your um, interactive experience going. Um, and it was, it, it was heavily, heavily D and D at first. So, um, and I was playing right when dark sun launched and all that stuff. So I was around the time frame that, that I was, I was getting into it. Um, and then, uh, and then as I got older and started getting into music and we were touring a lot and that kind of thing. So I, I got away from being able to sit down at a table. Um, uh, none of my band members play D and D, so <laughs> I had to kind of put it, put it in my, in my rear view, but they all played video games. So I was able to jump into the video game mode, which is why getting into game design, 
um, it's kind of like a hybrid of my approach to game design is like a hybrid of a video game and a tabletop experience. So, and that brings me to, to where I'm at. Very cool. All right, let's uh, let's just dive right in. Let's get a good working definition, a good frame around the conversation we're about to have. What exactly is feedback? What does that mean as far as what we're talking about today? So how I conceive feedback is feedback is the sounding board from uh, people you're not close to. Um, that's the way I look at it, right? Um, people that you're you're close to that are in your immediate team, uh, they can obviously have a sounding board as well, but um, you kind of get a reflection sometimes. Um, maybe the people that are close to you have too similar of thoughts. So for me, I, I look at, at feedback purely from people that don't have a dog in the race. Um, and, and I think that's the, that's the stuff, that's the material, that's the mana <laughs> that can really help you grow your game. Yeah. And this could be positive. It could be negative. It could be neutral. And sometimes neutral is actually worse than the negative. If people are just like, meh, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and like, a lot what? of times, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of times, uh, negative is, is confused for mean and that's bad. You don't want to, you don't want to get your mind into that state because a negative comment or a negative piece of feedback is not malicious all the time. Oh, so. absolutely. I think that's something we can definitely dive into here in a little bit as far as like how to have a, a, a thick skin, so to speak, but also just to understand that, you know, more than likely people aren't against you. That's something I've learned over the years is that people aren't against me. They're just for themselves. And mm-hmm. understanding that is super helpful, especially, you know, when, when you're reading the, and if you if you do this, you do this at your own risk, obviously. But if you're reading the Board Game Geek reviews and criticisms of your game, uh, it's helpful to put yourself in that mindset of, you know what? They're not against me. They don't hate me. You know, I they don't know this me. game. Yeah, exactly. This game is not me. It's not my character or personality or anything like that. It's just something I created and it's not for everyone. And I think, you know, just understanding the, the place of feedback. And sometimes we get it a little bit out of sorts, like we're the place of feedback is, and we maybe put it in, in a place where it has a little bit too much weight. It carries a little too much weight in how we feel about ourselves or about our lives. At the same time, you might go a little bit too far the other way, in which case you disregard all feedback. You know, I've talked to some people that think they have the greatest game since Monopoly and refuse to listen to anything else. And it, that's also not good. So I think finding a place there in the middle uh, is, is really, really good. And so let, let's kind of keep tra- traveling down this, this path. Why is it so important? Why do you believe it's so important to understand the role of feedback in game design? Uh, it's because it's the only feedback is the second voice that's, and it's not in your head. If that made sense, it's like, it's something that you have to listen to and it's guiding you. Um, of course you can't just, you can't listen to every piece of feedback or you'll just go insane and you can never finish anything. But there is this, it's a gift. Um, and in fact, I believe that the Kickstarter culture in general, uh, is, it, arguably why we have such deep detailed and robust games now as opposed to back in the day i genuinely feel it's because publishers especially the ones that that take feedback properly uh they grow their brands based off of listening to this feedback and we've never quite had a vacuum of isolated feedback as much as we have now with kickstarter and board game geek and things like that and if you just listen to those voices um they can it's kind of like the siren calling like if you if you just listen it can take you someplace way better than you could have gone just by listening to the voice in your head yeah that's a really good point you know at, at no time in gaming history up until recently could you get such 
uh, incredible feedback in real time before the game was manufactured, right? Typically, you would have to make a game and then put it out in the market and then hope people liked it. You know, you did your playtesting, you did your development, but, you know, more people would play it the day it came out than all the playtesting combined, right? And so, you know, if, if you screwed something up or if you had really low quality components or bad art or whatever, you might not know it until you had already printed 5,000 copies. Whereas now you can get really good feedback in real time. And that can also not be great for your mental health. So you have to manage that. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's we live in exciting times. And I think it's also the difference between perception and reality, right? In my head, I can believe that this game is phenomenal and all the systems work and it's balanced and it's fun and it provides good choices and it lasts just the right amount of time. It doesn't overstay its welcome and all that. But that's in my head. Feedback is all of a sudden the dose of reality that every designer, every creative person needs to, to find out is there the thing that they've created, is it actually as good as they think it is or not, right? And when I was in college playing football, we had a sign on our wall that said, you are what you put on tape. In other words, it doesn't matter how good you think you are. When we watch the tape, that is the reality. And That's I feel like it. in game, yeah, exactly. You know, it doesn't matter what ESPN says. It matter, all that matters is you miss that block, you drop that ball, you miss that tackle. That's that's the reality of who you are. And I feel like feedback is the same thing in game design. It, you get to learn the reality of who your game is, and then you get to go from there. And so, tell me, kind of your experience with with feedback, and kind of maybe your overview of like your process, and then we'll dive into more specifics. Sure, sure. Um, and this is this really is kind of the crux of it, right? It's how do you? What's your own personal system for digesting feedback? Because it's going to be different for everyone, right? Uh, I I feel like um, for for me, uh, I've come to the point where the most important thing about uh, feedback for me is knowing the motivation of the feedback. If I can understand the motivation of where the person's comment was coming from, then I can compartmentalize it and know if it's something that I need to spend any energy on whatsoever. Uh, and it, this this actually applies a lot to reviewers um, because another amazing thing that we have uh, at, at our disposal beyond the, um, the vacuum that I had mentioned a moment ago, but we also have this amazing YouTube uh, era now where we have reviewers and while you get to you get to uh, it helps marketing a lot and you get to sort of like uh, your game gets to be isolated and spotlighted and, and feel special before it's even released uh, the downside to it though is that a lot of the reviewers for example that would give feedback their motivation is to create content and their schedule might not permit regardless of what it looks like actually on the final product that they post their time might have might not have permitted a proper experience of your game. And so some of the comments that they say, because they usually have a section at the end that's like, well, this is the pros and this is the cons. And of course, most designers isolate themselves to the cons and they just, they focus on that, hyper-focus on that. But in reality, if they say something that might not be appropriate, if they got a rule wrong, or if they say something negative about the pacing of the game, for example, um, you got to understand the motive, the motivation behind the comment. They're trying to give some kind of feedback because it fits within the wheelhouse of, of what they do. They have to give negatives because unless it's a paid, you know, preview, um, they have to stay true to their fan base. They can't just say everything is good all the time for everyone. Right. But it doesn't mean that the comment is rooted in some, actual experience. So why am I isolating the reviewers as an example is because I'm just, uh, that's one type of feedback that I would compartmentalize and I would say, okay, um, 
is this something that I need to change about my game? Or is this something that maybe is better just kind of left alone? And it's like, well, maybe that was just their experience or whatever, right? So the motivation of the feedback, that's the first process that I, I run the feedback through. Um, this And the second um, part of it is uh, whether or not I have actually addressed it already. Because a lot of times feedback will come in and the person making the feedback doesn't understand that through playtesting and hundreds of hours, you've tried maybe their comment or you've tried their piece of feedback and you know why extensively that's not going to work. They just put a few seconds into a keyboard and that was it, right? So there's no sense in getting hyped up or, or feeling like you need to go back to the drawing board if you already know that you've tried it, right? So some feedback is just, there's no sense in addressing it, right? So motivation, whether or not you've tried it. Those are the two, those are the two big things that I try and organize my feedback in my head. <laughs> yeah, that's great advice. And I think understanding how to chew the meat and spit out the bones is a phenomenal thing to learn as a designer or just creative person in general, whether you're writing or making movies or whatever, is to take in the feedback, take in criticism and understand what is good and what is not or what is useless or, or like you said, things you've already tried and things that you're, you're already working on. I think also understanding the source, the first thing you, you mentioned, understanding the place that people are coming from. Uh, is this a person that really just doesn't like these types of games? You know, I've play tested quite a few times with people who the game that we were play testing just wasn't for them. Maybe they only like Uno. You know, they really like family games that take 10 minutes. And I've got this hour long game that's it's still a family game, but it's not Uno. Right. And so, you know, they're like, eh, it's OK. It, it took a long time. It lasted a lot longer than I wish it had. OK, let me let me assess the source of that information and then put that into my, my, my understanding of it, right? Because it could be really easy to, to hear somebody and go, wow, they hated this game and my game must be bad. Well, maybe, or maybe they just don't like this type of game or they have never, never played this type of game before either. And you know, that could also be something similar. And so how do you kind of discern that the, when you're looking at the source, what are some of the other things that maybe you're looking for to kind of go, okay, what do I take away from this particular feedback? Yeah, so that, that's awesome that you brought up a second example too, because there are so many um different motivations for a comment, right? Like the, uh, somebody doesn't like that game mode or that type of game, for example, like you just said, the reviewer just having to make content. Another one could be they were just having a bad day at the time that they experienced your game. Um, and maybe they were kept getting interrupted. Who knows? Any number of, of, of things. But I feel like when I, when I come across that and I'm trying to discern what the motivation is, um, I think it's when you live with your game long enough, um, you know when the comment is is valid. Like you know when it's something that you've either put off fixing or if it's something that you try and turn a blind eye because you you just can't figure out the problem and you just you just go, well, you know what? I like the system too much. I'm going to keep it in the game despite knowing the problems that it's causing you on in other systems within your game. So you force yourself to sort of like ignore the negative, ugly aspects of your game design. And when somebody actually puts a comment out there, a piece of feedback that targets some of those blemishes, those are the ones that either can sting the most for sure, because you just don't know how to solve it or, or you don't have the time and you wish you could. Um, and I feel like if it hits one of those buttons, those are the ones to listen to. Because the ones that sting, the ones that you know is an actual real issue, they need to be addressed eventually. You can't ignore it forever. 
Um, and if you're getting if you're getting feedback that is um, that is compounding that, right? That is like reiterating that it's an issue. Uh, I feel like those are the ones that you should pay attention to the most because that's not coming from that's not coming from anything a motivation uh, a personal motivation of the of the commenter. It's it's a real issue with your game, likely. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's uh, let's look at things from a couple different angles. Let's talk about first the feedback you're getting during a game. You know, as you're sitting there, if this is a kind of a blind play test or a, t- a test where maybe it's unguided, or if it is guided, you're not playing. You're just kind of sitting back and watching. Maybe you could be playing too, but anyway, you're watching the other people at the table. What feedback are you looking for there? And this is long before they're actually telling you specifically, "Hey, this isn't fun. Hey, this this doesn't work." Just almost like the unspoken feedback or the things that you're you're taking notes about during play. Tell me about those things. Uh, when I'm watching people play the game. Uh, the first and most important thing is do I need to explain something twice? If I can explain something one time and then that particular thing is just learned and then the game just rolls forward, um, then I know that's going to translate well to a rule book. Um, I also know that it is something that is helping me long-term in pacing. So I don't need to, uh, if, if my game is running long, for example, or first playthroughs are running long, maybe I can knock some of those systems, those, that learning curve uh, off, off of my list of problems, right? So I'm really paying attention to what is something that I need to say more than once at the table during the explanation. And then the second thing is, is when somebody is uh, not playing for the, this is of course, when you're watching somebody play for the first time uh, and over 11 conventions worldwide, we have, and with surveys from every one of them, this is a very, um, very important topic that you're bringing up here about watching people play um, is when the person is not playing, what are they, what, it's not their turn. What are they doing? And I try and watch for that. I try and genuinely see if they're interested in their next turn or if they're interested in what the other player's actually doing. Um, uh, or if they're just sort of like buying their time uh, to, to maybe, you know, move on to the next game at the convention or whatever it is. So body mannerisms is a really important thing to watch for me too. So those, those are really important. Yeah, for sure. One of the things I'm, I'm taking notes about is, you know, how many times do they have to refer to the rule book? How many, and what are those things that they're referring about? Is it something that maybe I could put on the board and make it like a quick referencing or, or give out a quick reference card so they're not having to go find it in the rule for book sure. if it's something over and over again? Or is it something that's just not clear? You know, did they read a card ability or a player board ability and then they go, well, what, what does that mean? Okay, in that case, maybe I need to make it clear on the table. Right. So that's something to be thinking about. Uh, like you said, body language also super, super valuable. What are the people doing when it's not their turn? Are they looking on their phone? Are they wandering around the room? And that, that's something to definitely take into account. But I also want to put a caveat there is after the game, I made a note, make a note of it during the game. After the game, ask them, like, hey, I noticed that uh, you were on your phone a lot. Uh, why, why was that? Was the game not engaging? Because it might be. No, I was just making sure my babysitter you know, was fine. Like it might be something totally different than your game. And so don't always just take that as absolute, but you know, at least make a note of it, follow up on it afterwards. Uh, Have you noticed a difference in like, you you mentioned it being played in different venues. Have you noticed a difference in the feedback you get like at a convention versus like a game store or like a a play test at your house? Have you noticed like the venue or the atmosphere changes feedback as well? That is an awesome question because this this goes to i don't know if, i don't even know if this falls under motivation or not to be honest with you but if at a convention i have in my experiences i have heard far less feedback about the micro 
as opposed to the macro at, at conventions. Online, it's all about the little, mostly it's about little things. Um, the icons are dated looking. Uh, maybe you shouldn't use those colors or too bright. Um, they, they comment about all of the, th- I, I don't like the layout of the card or it, the card seems too intimidating, something like that. Th- these pieces of feedback are almost exclusively online. I, I honestly can't recall a single moment at a convention where somebody sat at the table and then gave us personal feedback in person before, during, or after a game and said anything about those trivial things, about those things that are important, but not crucial to gameplay, right? Um, and I don't know why that is necessarily. I don't know if it's because they think it at the convention, but they don't want to say it because most people are polite. Or if it's because when you actually get your hands on a game, your priorities of what's what you expect of the game just are different than if you're looking at pictures or if you're considering backing, for example. Um, I'm not. I haven't quite figured out why that is, but it is uh, almost exclusively online that we hear about those things. So I consider online to be a different venue as well, personally. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's something worth thinking about too, especially if you're only doing in-person playtest, or if you're only doing online playtest, or if you're only doing whatever and, and thinking through, okay, maybe I need to diversify the different venues, so to speak, that I'm doing the playtesting, because maybe I will get some different feedback. You know, I feel like at conventions, and I'm just kind of speculating here, maybe people uh, are a little bit more pressed for time. You know, they, they want to go see the other booth. They want to go get some lunch. They want to go, they're here, not just to playtest your game, right? They're here to do all sorts of stuff. And so maybe they don't want to spend too much time giving feedback or, or maybe they even think about like, well, okay, I've got some really uh, interesting feedback here, but that might lead to a really long conversation. I don't have time for that. Sure. Like they might yep. think through that. And so that's something to take uh, you know into account. And also online. So I don't, I don't know this for sure, but it seems like people have a tendency to say things online that they wouldn't say in person. That just seems to be my experience. <laughs> and so maybe that barrier, Agreed. yeah, maybe that barrier of being online just kind of gives them a little more freedom. They feel like to say whatever they, they want. And maybe that's a good thing. That's not necessarily a bad thing in this case, right? If they're oh, a little no, bit more no, open to being more critical, more honest, um, you know, hopefully they're not being mean about it, uh, but that's something else to, to definitely think about. And so, what, what else? What else are you thinking about at the table during the game? Are there other things that, that you found that like really set yourself up for success when it comes to providing a really good experience for the people as they're playing the game? Yes. I think in-person uh, playthroughs are the only real way to help balance the optics of your game. And what I mean by optics is if somebody just looks at your game, it doesn't matter how complicated it is, if you have a lot of components on the table, it could be the easiest game in the world. If you have a lot of components on the table, people are going to think it's complicated. It just, they just are. It's, I don't know if it's, maybe, I, I mean, I probably would too. If I walked by somebody's game and I just saw, you know, a whole bunch of components out. But if 50% of those components are only used 10% of the time during your game, you know, maybe there's a systemic problem. Maybe, uh, maybe there's, there's too many things going on. Maybe you can remove stuff. Who knows how you solve it, but um, but especially at conventions, when you see people approaching the table, how they react to your game based off of the component count that's on the table. And that was one of the biggest changes we made was to the optics of our game uh, from first campaign to second campaign and through all the conventions because we wanted the game to look accurately as complex as the game actually is. 
And that's, there's no way you're going to be able to do that isolated in your office and, and then just going straight to market. There's just no way. Yeah. That's something super interesting to think about. And I think also just understand this is something I've learned personally is the more my prototype looks like a prototype, the more negative people typically are during feedback, right? So if you take the exact same game, you don't change anything about the gameplay or how the thing works, the experience or anything, but you just give it more professional looking graphic design and and art. People have a tendency I've found to be more positive about the game in general. So that's another thing to keep in mind. If you're getting really negative feedback and maybe it's because your game is on no cards. I mean, that really could be contributing, right? Maybe it's a bad game too, right? But it could also just be their perception of the game, you know, and if they perceive this thing as being more professional and more well done and it looking really nice, and I'm not saying go out and spend a bunch of money on art or anything like that. I'm not saying that, but just when you put a little more, a little extra time into how the game looks on the table, especially in a, at a convention or, you know, whatever, uh, I think it might affect your playtesters and the feedback that they give. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'll take that a, a little farther as well and say that where where are you with your commitment to the game? Because when you're making a game, sometimes it is absolutely a hobby and sometimes it, somebody is totally okay with taking five, even a decade uh, of years to to design their game and they're going to get it the way they want it. And eventually they're going to hire artists and eventually they're going to get the game out there. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that, right? Um, but if you are in the, in the immediate now game design um, space, um, some of the art is going to be needed at the end of the process and can be used now as well. So there is a block of investment money that can be dropped. Um, Portraits is a really good example. If your graphic design is going to change, if game design elements are going to change and all of that's going to happen, that's fine. But if you know for sure that your soldier is going to be in the game, no matter what iteration that it's going to be, get the soldier painted. Um, Because there's no, and 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 I mean professionally, like long-term, this is ready for market painted, not, you know, on Fiverr, somebody's going to do something. Because attempting to go professional and not going all the way can hurt you as well. You're better off on note cards if you get really bad art. So you definitely want to, but I do feel like though that um, maybe committing yourself uh, financially to some of the prettier aspects earlier in the process than most people do is actually beneficial. Um, I, I, I really think that. And also investing in your game keeps you motivated, right? If you have a dog in the race, that's a, um, I feel like it, when things aren't going so well, when things are maybe less um, fun because you're tired of your game or you're you're tired of these problems with the games, you're committed financially to something and you're not going to shelf it. You got to see it through. Yeah, that's a really good point. Now, with the caveat that you're going to publish this yourself, that you're going to do it yourself, I wouldn't mm-hmm. do this if you're going to pitch the game to a publisher and you're going to try to license it out because odds are you're, you're wasting money. You're, you're not going to get that money back. So I think that's something to think about. But at the same time, you can go on iStock Photo and find really nice pictures that you can use to have a really good looking uh, prototype. You can go in the Humble Humble Bundle, I think HumbleBundle.com, something like that. And usually that's for video games, but they offer all sorts of assets that you can purchase for your board game, your card game, just to make things look good. And when you're pitching to a publisher, actually, that's going to help you there as well. Because, you know, as, as people, they're also drawn to things that look good. And so they're more likely to think your game is, is better if you have better graphics, better assets, better art and things like that. All right, let's shift gears and uh, let's talk about after the playtest. Tell me about what you're 
looking for, what you're asking, like what specific questions do you have in, you know, if you have any uh, in mind, do you do it? Actually, let's just start there and we'll kind of go, go from there. So during, so during play testing, what am I asking? Actually, let's back up. Do you ask questions while people are playing or do you let them ask you questions? Tell me about that mm. aspect as far as the dialogue, even before the game is over. Are you already having questions asked and answered? Um, yeah, I, um, I like having the, um, my, my approach to, to the playtesting experience with new players is I want them to feel excited to try something new. Hopefully they're attracted to the genre to begin with. So let's just assume that's there. Um, and then I like to give them just enough to get their hands moving, to get them interacting with components and asking me questions, um, I obviously have to give them the quick overview, right? But I try not to give any information uh, that isn't needed. So for example, we have multiple conf uh, afflictions in the game, right? We have like bleed and poison and things like that. So um, what I'll tell them is that we have afflictions in the game and I'll just tell them that much. And then I won't talk about bleed unless they play a card that requires bleed. And then I'll explain bleed. So I try and keep my communication with players um, to what it is that they're requiring of me, if that makes sense. That's kind of like how I like to like to pace it. Yeah, absolutely. I know some designers will actively have conversations. Now, this also depends on the like the the level of playtesting that you're doing. If you're if you're at the very end of the playtesting cycle and you're just doing testing where you're just watching to see how the game plays, I can understand not saying a word and just seeing how the game plays out and that'd be fine. <laughs> but if you're early on, a lot of times it's really good to have conversations of hey, I noticed you played this card instead of that other card. And why did you do that? And asking that question. And maybe you'll get some really good feedback because maybe the player just didn't understand the rules. Maybe the card wasn't clear, like the way it was written. They thought that mm -hmm. this was a better play. But in your mind, you're like, well, that was obviously not the best play because you know you had that other card that seemed to be better. But asking that question, say, hey, why did you do that? And don't say, oh, that was bad play. Like you can ask that about anything and just kind of get some uh, immediate feedback because maybe you're not going to remember this an hour from now after the game's over or something like that. And maybe that player is not going to remember it either. And so just asking in the moment, hey, why did you do that? Why did you attack that player and not attack this other player? Because it seemed like that. But don't say, oh, it seems like that would be a better play to make them feel dumb. Like, don't do that. No. But just ask <laughs> open-ended questions. Why did you do that? What, what are you thinking here? Help me understand why you played that card. Uh, I'm trying to get a better understanding. Whatever, you know, not in a negative way, but just asking uh, in general, I think is a really good good way to do it, especially early yes, on when, yes. when the game is still subject to change drastically. And also feel free to change the game mid-play. I think that's a great thing. If you why see not? a card, yeah, yeah if you see a card not? is broken, you know, a player's asking questions, be like, all right, that, that card normally costs five. We're going to drop that down to three, or we're going to make it cost 10 because that's way overpowered. Change the game right there. Players understand it's a prototype. This is kind of what they yeah, signed. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And they love to see that. And what you just said is such a huge point in all of this, is that where are you in the design aspect of your game? That 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 can affect everything we've already said, right? If you're, how new is this from the art? Like you had mentioned just a second ago, if you're if you're just getting going, if you're going to pub, where are you with with your within the uh, the evolution of your game? Um, that affects every aspect of this, <laughs> all of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's, uh, let's transition now. The game is over. We're in the feedback session, quote unquote. What are the questions you're asking? Do you have like a written form? Do you record it? Tell me about your process after the game is over. Yes. Yeah, so if we're at a convention that was primarily for just 
um, playing, right? If it was a, and why I say that is because sometimes we'll be at a convention and our, our focus is just to sort of like do giveaways and get people excited about the brand and about remembering the, you know, the game, the rune Lords or whatever, our game. And we would, um, but if our focus at that particular event was all gameplay, like we don't, we just want people to sit at the table and that's it. Um, then I think after people get done playing, we would ask hyper-focused questions about pacing. That's a real big one. Did you think the game was moving forward at all times? And when it wasn't moving forward, was it because you were strategizing? And did that feel good? Um, so pacing is, 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 a, is super crucial to us. Um, and then is this something that's in your normal wheelhouse of games? Those are the two most important questions that I ask after a game. Is this a game you normally would play? And how was the pacing? So that's just, that's my personal thing that I concentrate the most on. Now, my other game designer, um, he, he might arguably more, be more concerned with some of the X's and O's, right? Like was any of the, was your rune Lord, did you feel that the opponent's rune Lord was more powerful than yours? Was there balancing issues, right? His, his mind might go a little more into that direction. Um, but I care about the, uh, the, the pacing of the game and whether or not the feedback I'm about to get is from somebody that would normally play my type of game. Yeah, absolutely. And I think having a very, uh, a varied group of questions that some are focused on the emotion of the game. How did you feel? Did the game last too long? Did it, was it too short? Did you feel like you had good choices or not enough choice? Like the whole emotional aspect is really excellent, but then also asking kind of more nuts and bolts kind of things, or even just, just taking the, the data down, right? Uh, what was the final score and how long did the game take exactly? Like the number of minutes, mm. uh, how long was the, the setup watch time? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, because once sure. you have, that actual information, you can track things over time and you can get averages. You know, if you're going for a 60 minute game and every game averages 90 minutes, obviously you have a problem. And if you have the actual information, the data from those individual tests, you can actually, you can look at it and go, okay, here's the issue. And so let me start making some tweak as opposed to going, I think the game lasts too long. Like, no, I have specific information that says it does. Right. Yes. And so anything that you track, all of a sudden you can make decisions about and make make changes. And so do you use any kind of like written form or anything like that? Uh, well, we, so feedback wise, we try to do surveys. So especially anybody that might be listening to this, that saw us at the conventions, they'll, they should remember the, the, um, the five question surveys that we would, then they varied all the time. We would change the questions around, but uh, we would have uh, usually a five question survey that anybody willing to uh, fill out would um, would get a little something at the booth, but those those questions would always vary based off where we were in the game design um, aspect of it. So, yeah, I, I I feel like when it comes to, when it comes to isolating exactly what it is about um, a game's problems, having that data that you just talked about uh, over long periods of time is what pays off. So with the stopwatch, like we just mentioned a second ago, uh, the timing of it, it might not feel like it's doing anything if you only run the stopwatch a few times because you just don't have a pool of data to really like pull from. Uh, but if you commit to timing your games and you do it over a long period of time, uh, and then you just run a little, like a notepad, for example, like that's, that's what I would do on my cell phone. I would just run a notepad and then I would just put a time and a list. Um, 
many, many, many games I forgot to time. So it's not like I was overly like perfect with this, but um, definitely timed hundreds of games. And you you can look back at that. So that was one of the big tools that I did was I would time it uh, and then we would do surveys. Those were two really big tools that I would use during play um, to help give me some data. Yeah, definitely. And I think another great thing about having the actual that is you can uh, find out things that maybe are, are weird outliers. Like if your normal game averages around like a 50 point, 50 points is like the, the winner, you know, around 55 or 50 or so. Typically, if someone scores around that many points, they win. And then all of a sudden you have a game where someone scores 100. You're like, well, what in the heck? What happened here? Like, what strategy <laughs> did you employ? Because <laughs> something is broken. Something is messed up. Yeah. Or and if you, you average... Yeah, exactly. And I, what do I need to do to fix that? You know, Or if you average around 90 minutes and all of a sudden you, you run a game and it takes way under or way longer, or it's going to take way longer and you're going to shut things down, because that's another thing I think you should always shut playtests down, play down early if they're lasting too long. Like, don't burn people out. Don't burn out your playtesters. You know, that's, that's one of the things I learned the hard way. Uh, but you can start figuring out, okay, what, what is different about this? Like what all of a sudden changed? Did I, did I tweak something and now it threw with the balance way off or something like that? But if you have that actual data, those numbers to look back on, it gives you a, a really good insight into maybe something that has changed, maybe something that's now uh, wrong. You mentioned that you only asked five questions, but I think five is a great number. I wouldn't ask more than 10, you know, single digits is excellent for making sure your feedback form is not too long. Don't go over one page would be my personal advice. Other people do differently. But that's my personal advice. Tell me about the questions that are on the actual written feedback form. So we cycle through so many of them, but I can, I can absolutely pull up a few of them from my memory. Um, optics, optics is a big one. So, and that could vary. Um, so we would say our standees. Okay. I know that sounds trivial but it's a very ergonomic experience too when you play these games like you get your hands on them it's tactical it's tactile i mean and um you you so would would somebody have enjoyed the game more if they had sculpted minis that they can move around as opposed to standees right um that's one kind of question that we would that we would ask and of course that had a second aspect to it which comes into like manufacturing and then kickstarter and stretch goals and all the other stuff that that information helps with but if it also matters um with the actual experience of the game as well so that's one example of the question that we would put another uh, one would be poker size cars versus tarot that falls under the same tactile question that we would put on there and then another question we would ask is about the pacing pacing is always something we would ask but we would we ice hyper focus it into something uh, about the pacing. So we would say, did activations run too long? Um, at specifically activations. One recruit, uh, did you feel like spending three action points was too much? Did you wish you had access to more action points each activation? That's another question that we've asked. Um, but these were all, because we knew we were going to do so many conventions and we knew we were going to have a, a larger body of, of people that we could ask these questions to, we knew we didn't have to make these questions overly broad, right? So, um, and that was, that's another one. Uh, just find something like pacing and then break it down into five or six different questions about your game and then just kind of spread them out. Um, th so those are a couple examples that we would, that we would use. Yeah. And I think it's really smart to ask very specific questions based on where the game design is at the moment. Right. Don't just ask general questions all the time. I mean, it's, it's fine to have a few general questions in there. There's nothing wrong with that. But asking very specific questions about the things that you're actually testing. I feel like a lot of people don't understand the difference between playing your game and play testing your game. There's a massive, massive difference. difference. 
Playtesting means you're going into it with a, a hypothesis. You're going in there to test something specific. Does the combat work? Does the combat take too long? Does, is it too many turns? Do the players have enough money during the game? Uh, does the economic system work? Does the game last too long? There's a million different specific questions that you should be diving into, but not all at the same time. You know, if you have a scientist mm-hmm. doing research on something and you say, hey, what are you testing? They don't say everything. No, they're not <laughs> testing everything. They're testing something specific. Do these chemicals react in a certain way together? I have a hypothesis that this is going to happen and we're going to test that. We're testing science. <laughs> science. I'm testing science. It's part of my life. No, that's not how this works. And so game design is very similar, right? If you're doing a play test, then you're testing something specifically. You should be, at least. And so your feedback questions or written form, whatever, probably needs to have those specific questions in there. Now, personally, I really like uh, what I, what's called the Goldilocks system, where basically when you ask a question, you, you give a, the, the tester a spectrum. Was it too light? Was it too heavy? Or was it right there in the middle? And typically asking, uh, basically I've got a little bubble in yes, guide kind of thing, a template. Yeah, it's perfect. And so, and it's got, and it's got five bubbles, right? And so how does the game feel as far as like choices and a five or not, not a five, but like all the way at the end is like, okay, had too many choices. I was overwhelmed or on the other end of the spectrum, I didn't have enough choices. It felt like the game played itself. Or was it right there in the middle where I had just enough choices and the game was fun. And then asking all sorts of questions like that. Was the game too lucky? Was it too random? And so that's one end of the spectrum or was it too strategic? And it didn't have enough random chance. It didn't have enough luck where if I'm not the better player, there's no way I'm going to win. So why even play? You know, so that's the other end. Or is it just right in the middle? And so Goldilocks system is a way that I've found to be helpful. Tell me about your system. That sounds like it's a little bit similar. Yeah, it is. That, that was a hundred percent the way to do it. In fact, we had a we did at PAX Unplugged. One of our questions at the very end was, um, "Was this survey easy?" And uh, and it, I forget the exact wording, but it says that. And then there was a. And then we also had the one through five. Um, because we just wanted to see like if people react and if there's a series of like numbers, easy, right? Like easy, medium, hard, or, you know, whatever it is, if you give them the Goldilocks thing, which is, a, am going to steal that from you, by the way, because that is the perfect way of describing that. It's a, um, you just, people tend to want to answer because it's a very easy way. They don't have to get into details. They don't have to explain why they're just like, you know, obviously you should always have a section for notes. If somebody wanted to like expound upon something, I think that you absolutely should, absolutely should let them, but that is the the best way. Our earlier versions of these, of these uh, surveys did not have a numbering system. We just asked questions and it just seemed too much of a commitment for people to like explain how they feel. But if it's just a quick little thing, like you just said, that is awesome. And I will say another thing about the, um, because it, we have an aspect of our game where we're, we have cards in our game, obviously, and every faction has these cards. So when you activate a guy, anybody that's played or recruit, anybody that has played card games is going to have a natural knee jerk desire to draw a card. It's just embedded. It's like baked into the genre almost. So for the longest time, I always wanted, when we first were doing this, I was like, is this a problem that you don't draw a card when you activate a recruit? And I figured it would just come out in the wash. I never asked. And then one convention, that was one of the questions that we just straight up asked. And it was like a flood. It was actually something people would have genuinely wanted to give feedback about, but I just never straight up asked. So this goes back to what you said at the very beginning of this conversation. If you don't ask for me, that was a good example of of how like I could have just never gotten an answer to that because I was waiting for it to just come out in the wash. Um, 
So these these surveys and these questionnaires and just straight up asking these questions directly and specifically, uh, it's the, the the information's right there. You just got to reach out and ask for it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, tell me a little bit more about the the feedback session at the end. You know, making sure that even that is not running too long. Not just that your playtest doesn't run too long, but also the feedback session doesn't run yes. too long. I think that's something to to think about. But tell me about like how you're taking in that information, how you're parsing through it to really figure out you know, what's good? What do I need to listen to? What do I need to throw in the trash? Cause that was a terrible idea. Like, tell me about that aspect of things. Yeah. So if you're, this is always comes across as like, uh, you know, like I know what I'm talking about. It's just totally my system and how we would take that information in. And then we would look at the current iteration of our game and any of the things that we felt like we had already solved. Um, we just, we wouldn't take in any more information about that topic. We, we had to stop. So if something, if you feel like you've already gotten it to a place where you're happy, you genuinely feel like you've done the best you can at balancing people's feedback and versus what you want out of your game, then just stop taking information about it entirely. Um, there's just no more of a reason to just keep kicking that dead horse because you're going to get different opinions literally forever on that topic. So I think that's a, that's a, the first and most important thing about the feedback process afterwards is if you've already decided to move on from that topic, you got to move on. Um, so there's that. And then another aspect of, of taking feedback in, uh, afterwards is as long as the motivation of that feedback was genuine and it applied and you look at that question of do you normally play skirmish games as long as all of that stuff adds up then i think you should at least try a few playthroughs of the game completely outside of the box go to some of the requests that seem outlandish that seem like you would never do it and just it doesn't take any time. You can just literally look at the card and just have a conversation with your co-designer, or if you don't have a co-designer, maybe a friend. And you could just say that this guy is going to behave this way, this playthrough. And you just go through one activation and just see if it sparks some sort of like interesting mechanic or some interesting thing about your game that you just never saw before. Because some of the feedback might be coming from players that love other games in your genre that you've never played. And if you just give some of those crazy suggestions um, a shot, you never know where it's going to lead. Just don't overly commit yourself to it, right? Don't play a full game with it or anything. Just run around real quick and just see if it if it does anything. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is pivotal in your growth as a game designer is understanding what feedback to listen to, what feedback to apply, what feedback just to say, thank you, I really appreciate you saying that. And it, it, it not go any further than that. And let me let me t- take a moment and talk about thank yous. Be very appreciative. I think, you know, you should begin a feedback session with a humongous thank you for to people for playing your game to begin with, because they have just done you a monumental favor. And, and thanking them maybe in more than just words, whether it's uh, their name in the rule book as a playtester, and you know, people love that, and that's something that doesn't cost you anything, or if it's free food, or a, a chance to win a giveaway, or something like that, but just being wildly appreciative of people who are giving you feedback and have playtested your game to begin with. If, if they are another designer, then thanking them by playtesting their game, I think goes a long way. So I definitely want uh, to mention that. But just, yeah, just being aware of like, what are people actually saying is such a, a difficult thing to to grasp sometimes, especially when you're, you're starting out, when you're new to game design and you're listening to feedback. It can be really easy to take everything as negative and to take things the wrong 
direction. I feel like a lot of times playtesters are really good at identifying a problem and really terrible at identifying a solution to that problem. And so, yeah, so be careful about taking their advice as far as solutions. Definitely write down the problem. And that's another, another thing real quick. Write down the problem. Don't just write down your ideas for a solution because more than likely you're going to come up with bad solutions. And if you haven't written down the actual problem, you might have forgotten what the problem really was. And so write down the problem first and then write down solutions. Don't just write down solutions. Uh, but I feel like, you know, getting to the heart of the matter as far as, you know, does someone say, yeah, I, I feel like uh, I didn't have enough choices during the game. Well, did they not have enough choices or is the actual problem they didn't have enough money to do various things? And if they had been given more money, if the economy of the game had given them a little bit more wealth, whether it's, you know, actions or, or whatever, uh, money to do different things or spend money and buy new cards or whatever, if you would change the economy a little bit, then they wouldn't have had the choice problem. So it's not actually a choice problem. It's a money problem during the game. And so getting into the heart of those issues. So tell me about that. Maybe tell me any experience you had with that or, or playtesters you know, giving you really bad ideas on solutions, any of those things along those lines. Yeah, uh, I think um, there's t twofold to that. So if you look at the, the actual from the design, um, the, the nuts and bolts of the game itself, uh, it's, I think a lot of people that play your game for the first time, they don't want to put themselves in the position mentally when they're giving you the feedback. They don't want to come from a place of, well, I've only played this once. I don't know all the rules. They're not going to, most people aren't going to give you the benefit of the doubt and, acknowledge that they just might not know how to play your game very well yet, right? There's a, so many of my favorite games that from video games on to, um, to board games that I don't really get the most out of it until I commit myself to giving it enough of a run. Um, because, and, uh, and the people that are, that are giving you the feedback aren't going to acknowledge that. And you have to remember that. So if somebody, like the example you just gave, a hundred percent, it could be a systemic problem where you're just, the economy's just not balanced. Um, and that is absolutely true. And to be honest, most, most likely the situation probably is that because economy is one of the hardest things to balance over the <laughs> entirety of your game. Right. But there's also a chance that they just, they just were bad at any game that has anything to do with the economy. They might fail miserably at any money management game they ever play. And um, so that's a really hard, that's a really hard thing to figure out to, to, to discern between. So, and, and then the other thing about the feedback is when people say very broad things, um, like very recently we had a, a review of our game, which um, what, I'm definitely not going to name any names, but it, absolutely fabulous review. And it was, we're overly happy with the overall outcome of, of the feedback. But there was a one comment in there that, came across as uh, very um, sort of like all-encompassing, which I think the comment was something along the lines of this game is trying to be, might be trying to be the only game that anybody ever plays. And I understand where that feedback comes from, right? Because there's a lot of game modes and there's a lot of things. It can come across. So when I take that in, um, I can look at it as one of two ways. I can look at it as A, there's too much going on in my game and this is how everyone's going to feel. Or I can look at it for the comment as it was, where it's like, well, that's impossible. Nobody could ever want to be the only game that anybody ever played. So I should disregard that feedback because I know that that's not what I'm trying to do. And um, I know that maybe it was just an off-the-cuff comment, right? So you have to discern what's actual feedback and what's just a comment, right? What's constructive and what's just 
narrative. <laughs> like, how do you know? Um, and that's, that's a tough, those are two completely different things. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think a lot of this just comes with time. It comes with experience. It comes with running into the wall over and over again and bumping your head and, and realizing what works and what doesn't and what feedback is actual feedback and what is just someone's personal opinion or preference. A lot of this just comes with time. There's no magical answer. It's just reps. It's just doing it over and over again. But let's talk about maybe a feedback session that does go a little bit off the rails and maybe it does get negative or toxic or something like that. How do you diffuse that kind of a situation? What do you what do you do when something does go a little bit down the path it shouldn't be going down? Um, I side with them completely and I bash my own game. I know that sounds stupid, like a terrible answer, <laughs> but um, I have no... Um, I have no hesitation whatsoever uh, with completely giving somebody that's becoming either hostile or overly negative and just giving them what they want. Uh, it doesn't change anything about my game. It doesn't change anything about me. And in fact, the moment you do that and you start to agree with them completely and you maybe even throw a couple digs at your own game and then you start to to spiral into a conversation further into what they actually like. And then you find out, Oh, well they're into 40 K it's like, Oh, okay, well, cool. I, I know a little bit about 40 K. And then before you know it, you come out the other end friends and they, uh, they, and they'll, they'll walk away from the experience understanding that you're kind of on the same team as them. And, uh, and it ends up being a positive thing, right? If you just, the second something is going to get to a wall like that, I just, I give them what the, I cave. Because there's nothing, I don't benefit from taking that anywhere dark. And there's problems with every single game that's ever been made. Uh, there's never been a perfect game that has ever been designed. And any game designer that has ever made a game could easily find things that are wrong with their game. So why not? Yeah, I think that's really good advice. It's very difficult, especially early on, to not take things personally and to not want to defend your game or explain why you made a choice or explain why a card works the way it does. It's very difficult to just sit there and take notes and nod along and say, thank you for your feedback. I really appreciate you saying it. it's very difficult. Let me just point that out right off the bat. It's, it's a challenge to just say, thanks. I appreciate you saying that when someone says, Hey, this is the worst game I've ever played. And maybe they say something worse. Maybe they say something really mean or, or just offensive. Uh, it's very difficult to just sit there and, and smile and just write down notes. And now no one ever, ever, has the right to say something crossing the line. Like, I, you know, and everybody's line maybe is a little bit different, but something that's ist, racist, sexist, oh, whatever. Sure. No one ever has the right to do that. And I think, you know, it, it, there's nothing wrong with packing up your game and, and walking away. If, if somebody mm -hmm. crossed the line, let, let me just state that. But assuming that doesn't happen, because that, that, that's rare. Thank goodness it's, it doesn't happen super uh, often. But if it does, I mean, it, you're to totally within your rights to stand up for yourself or the people at the table or whatever and, and, you know, that's, that's what I have to say about that. But just assuming that maybe they said something that was hurtful or offensive, maybe they didn't mean to, maybe they're having a bad day, you know, maybe mm -hmm. they didn't mean to say something. And so, you know, kind of taking a step back and not taking it personally and maybe putting yourself in their shoes or, or whatever, or even asking them, Hey, help me understand like the heart. Why did, why did you say it this way? I understand what you're saying. Why did you say it that way? And, and just asking them the question, I think it's totally fine. But to your point, you're never going to defend your game to a point where someone now likes it where they're having a conversation and they don't like it and you defend it to the point where they're like, you know what? I love this game. You're right. Like, that's not going to happen. So exactly. just don't worry about it. Just, exactly. just move on. Just let it go and be careful not to escalate the situation into a debate. Like, why are you debating a playtester? Like, it, like it's, it's fine. Like, if they don't like your game, they don't like your game. Like, don't debate them. Don't escalate the situation. Don't make things worse. Just try to move on as quickly as you can. Move on to ask somebody else a question, something like that. You know, just diffuse the situation as quickly and as easily as you can. I, I like your advice right there a lot. 
yeah, bash the game too. Like, yeah, you know what? You're right. That that is broken. I need to take a look at that and just agree with it. Even if you don't agree, just be like, you know, if you don't agree, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because they because like a second ago, maybe they just played the game poorly. But somebody that somebody that is wired to be able to say something that negative to a stranger, are they the if they're wired that way? They're not worth having the debate conversation with. They're just they're not wired correctly for this conversation so there's yeah. no point in having it right and that's okay you know not everybody has and to that be is okay yeah exactly uh, and i know eric lang i talked to him about this a while back and uh, he talked about how he doesn't even do feedback sessions after games it's not even something that's part of his process anymore he, he's only looking at how are people playing the game is the the game hitting the beats that he's wanting it to hit is it providing the experience in game right and he doesn't even sit, you know sit around and talk about the game afterwards when the game is over, the game is over. And he's got enough feedback. He's got enough notes that he's written down to take into the next iteration because he found a lot of these situations to be really frustrating. And so he just stopped doing it. And I don't think that's, I don't think it's bad to do it. I don't think it's bad to not do it. I think you figure out whatever works for you and your process and then run with it and go from there. All right. What else? What have we not talked about? What have we not brought into the equation for people to be thinking about when it comes to feedback? I think maybe um, specifically if you're doing a Kickstarter campaign, I think a lot of this can apply like really focused on you specifically uh, if you're if you're doing a Kickstarter, especially if you're doing a relaunch because that is where we are right now. And if I were to try and pass along any of my experience for whatever that's worth to anybody that might be doing a relaunch, um, don't just relaunch your game exactly the same way. Uh, you have to show that you care about the feedback, but not in a, like, because you genuinely made changes to your game um, without changing the core experience of your game. So uh, if I were to, and and one of the strategies that I would suggest to somebody that's trying to pull that off is look at your mission statement and then don't derail yourself from the mission statement of your game. Uh, that was actually one of the things that we, so we finished up the first campaign. We had a trailer that we had made. I had a really great voice talent do the voiceover. I spent weeks iterating and and fine tweaking this particular script. And I sat down with my game designer with no one around and it was just him and me. And I, and I said, we are going to make changes to our game to fix the optics, to fix pacing, to fix various things. But if we can't use the exact script from that first trailer, we can't change it. And the reason I did that is because we believed 100% that the game we were trying to make needed to be made. So as long as we don't change our mission statement, I'm okay with changing equipment tokens into cards. It's the same game. You're still experiencing the same strategies. It's just, were there too many components on the table? Okay, Um a good example, if you don't mind me giving one really quick about uh, the dice, we had uh, a D20 system where you, it's very much a D20 D&D system where you would roll a dice and then you would add your attack and then the other person would add up their defense and did you hit or did you not, right? But that's a lot of bookkeeping for a lot of people. So we just went ahead and changed our D20 system to a D6 system where it told you how much damage you did. And then it told you, and then all, everything was all in, encompassed into a simple D6. Same exact system, progressive combat still had all of those different elements, but now it just plays faster, but we didn't derail from the mission statement. So 
Uh, I would say that if you're doing a, if you're making changes to a game that you that you're already certain that you want to make, um, then don't change your game entirely. Don't change the soul of your game based off of feedback. Just try and figure out how to get the feedback to make the soul of your game better. Yeah, that's super interesting and something definitely to think about, especially after a failure. I think after a failed Kickstarter campaign and my first board game Kickstarter campaign was a failure. I had to cancel it and then relaunch later and the, the relaunch it funded and it, it did it did okay nothing crazy i think i had 350 backers you know so a respectable relaunch Definitely. and what i was chasing uh, after uh, but i think after a failure you just got to be real honest with yourself and you got to listen to people maybe more than you would have originally because maybe not listening to people enough is why it didn't work out maybe mm-hmm. that could be it and i think you also have to be willing to accept the fact that perhaps this game doesn't need to be made like, I think that's also a valid thing you need to be listening for that no one wants to hear. And I get it, especially if you put a, a bunch of time and effort and money. I get it. No one wants to hear this game doesn't need to be made, but it needs to be on the table. And you need to be willing to take hard criticism, hard feedback, and really and truly listen and figure out why did this thing fail. And I think it's the same if you fail at anything. If your business fails, you got to take a step back and don't just blame the market. Don't just blame no, the economy. No. Blame everybody else. No, you take a step <laughs> back and you go, okay, what did I do poorly? What could I have done differently? What mistakes have I made? And you seek out people that are smarter than you. You, you seek out people who have had success and you seek out people who are your target customer, your tar- target audience, whatever. And you figure out like what what's the truth? Again, you are what you put on tape. What is on the tape? Go back and watch the tape and then go figure it out. Go back and watch it, yes. And then go from there. Uh, all right, this, this has been really, really good, John. Uh, excellent uh, information. Last thing I want to kind of leave listeners with, and this is some a feedback angle that I had not really thought about up until recently, and that's personal feedback, the feedback from yourself, especially early on. What kind of feedback are you looking for personally? Maybe you're just playing the game by yourself. Maybe you're playing, you know, it's a multiplayer game, but you're playing all four all four players, you're playing the game and trying to figure it out and understand. What feedback are you listening to in your own head during the game design process? That's an awesome question. And let me tell you right now, my days of doing all four Rune Lords is over. I definitely did that many, many, many times. That is a time-consuming process. But it's funny you should say that because you definitely need to do that. Um, But I would say that when I'm playing my own game, I'm trying to find... I I think I'm looking for the core vibe that made me want to make the game in the first place. And if I ever have a playthrough where I couldn't find that that little like, yeah, this is why I'm making this game. Like if I can't experience that at all, um, I think that would be a big red flag. And sometimes that can be confused if you don't feel that vibe. It can be confused sometimes because this isn't always fun. Sometimes you're working on a game that you just feel at your wits end with, or maybe you've just put too many hours into it and you need to take a break and step away. I will tell you that the pandemic absolutely helped big time with this because when China closed down, I couldn't, I couldn't reach out to E-Star Games anymore for quoting. And I, I couldn't, there was so many things that I just, I was just cut off. There was no sense of, I couldn't meet up with my co-designer anymore without putting everything on tabletop simulator first. And it was just, I literally got a few months, two months straight where I kind of just took a break from the game entirely. Uh, And that recharge affected when I played the game again. You know, I put everything up on Tabletop Simulator and I and I started making all those iteration changes. 
And every time I played it, I found that little thing where it was like, yeah, this is why this game needs to be made. This is why I love this game. So I think that's what I'm looking for when I play my own game. That's the feedback. Because if you don't, if you don't love what you're making, um, that's that marriage thing, right? If you don't love each other anymore. <laughs> well, it's a little bit different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit different, but hopefully it's in the same line with your example, right? <laughs> hopefully you're not as quick to uh, put a, a marriage on the shelf as you might with a, a bad game. Exactly. With a game, but, exactly. uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you bring up a good point. You, you need to love it to a certain degree because you're going to be playtesting this thing for a while and you're going to be knee deep in this thing for a while. Games take a long time to bring to market, typically, especially the more complex they are, the, the more testing and playing that they need. And so I think personally, one thing that I've found really helpful is I design games for me. I am the target audience. And so when I'm playing a game, especially early on in a process, the game design process, it's like, am I having fun? This game is for me. So if I'm not having fun with this, I shouldn't expect anybody else to because I'm designing the game that I want to play. And so I'm really thinking through, am I having fun? Are these choices that I'm making, do I personally, do I find them interesting? Now, with a caveat, you have a tendency to like your own stuff more than you probably should. And so you don't take too much. Don't put too much into, you know, your early opinions and thoughts because you might be wrong and you might be wrong by a lot. But but at least, but if you're not having fun, then you're definitely you're on the wrong track, right? And so thinking through, is this fun for me? Is this something I cannot wait to share with other people? The choices that are being made, the, the aspects of the game, the way it plays, is it something I'm excited about? Does this get me going? Because if you don't have at least a spark of energy and excitement, like you're saying earlier, it's going to be really hard to keep going. It's going to be hard to, to take this trucking. thing. Yeah, because yeah. you're going to hit a place in the game design process where it's not fun anymore. Like the game could be fun, but the process is not fun of having to play test this thing over and over and over again. And it's just not, it's just not quite there. And it's just part of it. It becomes a grind. And most people, they quit. They they jump to the uh, the new shiny object that's brand new and fun again, you know, and they don't actually go through the grind of all the playtesting and development that it takes to get a game across the finish line. And so that's one of the things I think separates amateurs from people who are at least, even if you're not a professional, that you at least have a professional mentality is being able to grind things out, so to speak, and get things uh, finished. And if you, so, if you don't mind, yeah. the last little point on what oh, you yeah. just made there, anyone that is that is that uh, that doesn't like the playtesting aspect of game design, and I've met a lot of designers that that's their least favorite part of it, is actually figuring out what's wrong with their game. Um, if another value in playtesting, especially with new players, this is actually specifically with new players, um, is that when you're in your kind of slump in those dark times with your motivation playtesting with a new person that's experiencing the game for the first time can most cases at least for me it relights that fire it reminds you um just by having somebody experience it for the first time in a way it kind of lets you vicariously do the same so that's another value in playtesting with new people is that it feels new to you as well so if you need that motivation uh, that's another good reason for playtesting yeah for sure. Well, John, this has been great, man. Closing thoughts. What, uh, what ideas do you want to leave listeners with as we close things out? Anything that you need to, to, uh, to do to keep the motivation alive um, when you're trying to look for the bugs in your game, I would say having a thick skin and, um, and just understanding the motivation of the comment and the feedback to begin with. Just know where it's coming from. Uh, and if you can come to terms with that, uh, that's that's personally how I feel about it. If you can come to terms with that, it allows you to 
navigate through the negativity a lot, a lot easier. Yeah, absolutely. But John, you got a game on Kickstarter right now. Tell me about that one. Uh, yeah, so the the Rune Lords board game it's a uh, it's a hex based skirmish game uh, for one to four players, and it's kind of driven through a CCG meta. So uh, it's uh, basically faction based, like you would expect from a skirmish. Um, but what makes the game uh, super unique is that after you've kind of gotten your bearings on these Rune Lords, and you've played them through a few various of the game modes that the game offers. You can do an optional deck builder called the Sovereignty Stage, and you can take the Rune Lords and you can mash all of their recruits and their armies, their Sovereignty decks, into Sovereignty Markets. And then over 12 rounds, up to four players can uh, do a really great interactive uh, deck building experience where uh, you make purchases from the market, you draw into journey cards and have encounters and things affect the economy. And then out the other end of that engine uh, pops a whole fresh new experience with your Rune Lord where you have cards from the other Rune Lord's armies. And um, some of those, some of the combos can just be absolutely bonkers. And it really helps with driving some life uh, into the game if you're already used to your favorite Rune Lords. Um, so yeah, it is, uh, it is, a really unique experience in that way. Awesome. Well, John, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with the Kickstarter and everything else you got going on right now. Thank you so much. You too, man. Thank you very much for everything that you do to the uh, for the community here, man. It's, it's awesome. I really yeah. appreciate it. Glad to do it. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?